0: Welcome to Think Like an Owner, a show exploring how the most ambitious CEOs grow great companies. I'm your host, Alex Bridgman. Each week, I dive into the strategies and tactics that build transformative businesses with the operators doing it firsthand. You can learn more about the guests and the companies they are building by visiting us at tlaopodcast.com. There, you will also find our weekly newsletter that further analyzes how companies are finding success today. Lastly, if you enjoy Think Like an Owner, please share this podcast with peer and leave us a review. My guest in this episode is Eric Jorgensen. Eric became a close friend while my wife and I lived in Omaha, and I love the energy and enthusiasm he brings to whatever he's doing, whether that's investing in tech startups, writing books like The Almanac of Naval Ravikant and the Anthology of Bology, hosting his Smart Friends podcast, or telling you about the latest innovations in sandwich making. And as of last summer, he is the CEO of Scribe Media, a book publisher where the author retains full creative control and financial upside from their creations, and in my opinion, is the perfect business for Eric to run. In this episode, we talk about the business of publishing, the power of books over other creative mediums, his new role as CEO of Scribe, and what he's learned being an author himself. Please enjoy this fantastic episode with my good friend, Eric Jorgensen. Every CEO and entrepreneur needs support from a team of expert professionals like attorneys, bankers, and accountants like Hood and Strong. Less often mentioned, but just as important, is insurance. And August Felker and his team at Oberly Risk Strategies are the experts you need on your team to navigate the insurance needs of your company as dozens of past podcast guests have partnered with them to do. Oberly helps you evaluate what your current and soon-to-be-acquired company needs for insurance today, while also anticipating what it will need tomorrow. To get in touch email august at august.felker at oberley-risk.com or visit their website at oberly riskcom And now for some advice and observations on insurance for small companies, here's August himself to share his expertise on today's Q&A. So within the first year of a CEO's new ownership in a business, what are some common insurance surprises that tend to come up?
1: So, so when we get involved with a, one of our clients and they're looking to buy a business, we really wanna try to make the insurance better for that client in their first year of running a business. And that means better pricing and, and uh, better coverages. Unfortunately, there are times where insurance does go up. And I, I think the, the main driver of that, what we see in our projects, is the seller has an insurance policies where they've really underreported the exposures in their business. And when you underreport, report pricing looks low or is low, it's lower than it should be. So, for example, um, you know, on workers' compensation is really based on like a payroll. For example, maybe they've underreported on the workers' compensation, or they've underreported revenue on the general liability policy. So, when we come in and we look and do a review, like, wait a minute, the the revenue on this policy it 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 says four million, but actually the business is eight million. You know, there's a difference there, and when we go to increase that to the insurance carrier, pricing is going to go up. It's a big part of diligence is trying to look at those underlying exposures to make sure that they're updated and current and helping, you know, you, the the searcher who's buying a business, make sure there's no surprises. You kind of know going in what what the pricing is going to be. Many times insurance policies are auditable, uh, but still uh, a lot of the sellers just keep the old exposures on there and they'll have an audit later, which which we want to make sure you don't have. Sometimes their audit isn't even done and the policies just kind of renew as is. And so there's nothing like malicious done by the seller. They just haven't updated their insurance in a long time. So those are the biggest things that that can drive the the premiums going up year over year is is under reporting on the exposures.
0: To learn more about Oberly risk strategies, please reach out to August directly at august.felker at oberly-risk.com and visit their website at oberly-risk.com. I also want to thank our other sponsors, Hood and Strong and Ravix Group, for supporting the show. And now to the episode. I think a fun place to dive into would be the books you've written and some of the content side. You've of course done a, a rolling fund for, you know, a, a good period of time and gotten to know lots of investors and other interesting founders that way. And you're now CEO of Scribe. But just like from a content perspective, what's been the, like, the driving force there for you?
2: Yeah. Well, let me first say I'm a huge fan of you and this podcast and this podcast title. The words think like an owner' have been present in my life since I was like old enough to hear and comprehend them growing up in like a small business household, so like this this podcast, this mission like speaks to my soul, and I'm very glad to be here. I think there's a very interesting discipline in writing that at least for me drastically like increases my retention and absorption of a thing like it's so I spend so much time consuming content and learning and trying to improve and the knowing that you have a deliverable like a book that you're trying to create at the end of this thing really like increases the bar it basically increases the bar of my note taking like trying to teach myself this thing and having the intermittent step of like and i'm going to publish those lessons learned in a book so i better really grok them and it better be really polished and really professional just gets me really psyched up to like spend more time iterating on this book, more time with the content, more time with the material, more time really internalizing it and practicing it, like a productive use of that, like social pressure. So it is, you know, the process of writing a book has changed my life. The process of having that book out in the world and seeing the feedback loop also separately totally changed my life. And those are both independently like amazing things to go through.
0: Yeah, I finished the, I think this this screenshot, but I I finished the Brad Jacobs book recently and. As like when Amazon Kindle, when you finish a book, it has like, oh, you're here based on this book, here are other books that you should read that you know you might like. And one of yours popped up. I think it was the Naval book. And I was like, oh, look at that. I know that guy. What's the like business side of of writing books? It's like I I kind of went down this like self-published author rabbit hole in college. And so I I have this kind of like way off to the side like interest in writing books and how that works. So I'm kind of curious, like now that you've got two books out there, what's been your experience with that kind of as a business?
2: Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested in this topic also. And I'm really surprised with how few, even how few authors, but especially how few business authors actually th- think in business terms about their book. Right? Like, if you ask them, like, what is the value of that asset? You know, value the like, Present value, the discounted like future cash flows of your book. What is the value of that asset? Like treat it like an equity or any other asset that you might think of. And what decisions are you making to increase the value of it? What trade offs are you making to, like in terms of partners and things like that? And when you look at the traditional publishing business model like, through that lens, it's kind of insane what most authors are doing they're making enormous trade-offs that most are not thinking about in economic terms at all they have their eye on the you know the prestige or or they're just trying to alleviate the pain of uncertainty about a book getting published or the fear that it's not going to feel legitimate but in doing so they're taking on this enormous controlling partner that is largely passive and somewhat detached from the actual outcome. Like The perception is, oh, I'm going to give this publisher the majority, the skin in the game, the creative control, and they're going to make sure that the book is successful, when the reality is they have this enormous portfolio effect. They publish you know, hundreds of books a year, and they know that some percentage of them are going to break out, and they're going to double down by piling resources on those, and the small ones that don't thrive, they're just going to cut off. But if you take on, and most people don't realize how much control they take, it's at least 50% in most cases, like 85 or 90%, plus you have an agent's cut in there. They take the majority of royalties from an author for the lifetime of that copyright and and assume creative control, right? Like, And if you're an author making 10% of each book sold. You you don't have the margins. You don't have the capital. You don't have the motivation to reinvest and actually be this super proactive, like, evangelist of your book because you're making pennies on the dollar and the publisher is getting most of it. So you're not actually going to, you don't have the motivation economically and the margins to go invest in the growth of your book and get it out there into more people's hands and give away copies to start that flywheel. And like, you're, you're really like, you shackling yourself with a ball and chain from the very beginning, for the hope of being one of those breakout successes, that, in my experience, like are pretty predictable. And somebody who comes in with you know two hundred thousand followers or a million followers or a great story or a really solid understanding of what how useful their book is for their audience and who exactly their audience is, like already knows that they're going to have a successful book. So I think that is like one oh one on think of your book like an asset you're creating this asset you want to be the ceo of that thing you want to retain creative and economic control of it because and this is perhaps the most important thing there's more to the book is matters so much more than for its own sales like a book does not have to make money to make you money is the line that i share over and over again like a book is just a way to package an idea and get it out there and be be a lighthouse to people who resonate with your idea or are looking for the expertise that you have and it can grow your business or change your life or impact an issue in dozens of ways and for most authors most people who are thinking about writing a book you know their north star the desired outcome is not like sell as many individual copies as possible the outcome is financial impact for their business or Impact on this social issue or transition their career, double their speaking fees, um, establish a category within their business, like become the industry expert in this niche thing and become the person that everybody calls when they need help with this. Like a book is so, so, so useful. We have this perception because of people like Brad Jacobs, which is an amazing book, and he's an incredible guy, but he's a, a classic example of like lived his whole life, then wrote the book. And if you look nine times out of 10, what actually happens is people write a book and it becomes the inflection point of their career. So you see this with like Guy Spear and Monish Pabrai in like the investing and value investing space. Like those guys didn't wait till they were 75 retiring and, and wrote a book. They wrote a book when they were 30, 35, 40, and it helped increase their profile, helped them bring in new LPs, helped them get proprietary access to deals. Like. It is a really fascinating thing to see how the prestige associated with a book can impact someone's career in ways that people drastically underestimate. I've seen it over and over and over again, and it's going to continue to be true. And there's a a huge reason why Stripe does what it does and does it at a really high level and what our clients look for when they come write a book with us or have us write a book on their behalf.
0: Yeah, I was listening to the Acquired episode with Ben Thompson, the Stratechery author, and they asked him this question, like, when should you, like, when are you going to write a book? And the economics for him, like, are phenomenal to just keep doing what he's doing without the book. But he did say, like, the right time to write the book, and he probably would have written in it on aggregation theory, but he said the right time to write the book would have been like five years ago or five years prior to, I think the episode came out like last year. But He would have written it five years ago. That would have been the right time for these early professionals or like CEOs or looking to do big things. Like, is there a right time that you've tried to hone in on where like, yes, this is the right time, the right inflection point in your career to write a book or like you have enough of an idea or enough of a story that this is starting to make sense?
2: I think the right time is going to be very context dependent so there's a whole series of like questions I would ask somebody in a in a private setting that I think would help diagnose that I will say the biggest hang up I see people have is they feel like they need to be able to clearly visualize steps 1 through 9 in order to take step 1 like oh, I'm not ready to start my book like I don't I don't really have it all fleshed out I'm like no no that's the process like that's that is what we do like our expertise is helping you position the book and then frame it and outline it and figure out what is the change that you're trying to create in your life? What is your expertise? How do we refine that? How do we filter what is like, maybe you actually have three book ideas that you've conflated into one and we can help parse that out. How do we structure your thoughts in this logical progression to a newcomer? How do we bring along someone through all the things that you've learned over the course of you know, 10, 20 years? And show them your expertise without overwhelming them or confusing them along the way and lay it out really clearly. We're not expecting you to have already done that work. That's what we're here for, right? Like we'll take it step by step and then we'll interview you. So you don't have to spend a thousand hours at a keyboard like banging your head against the wall trying to figure out how to do this. Like there are experts who can help you do it. And we we have those experts. We are those experts integrated into the rest of the writing and publishing process. So it is like one publishing manager, Mayo Clinic style service, all the way from, hey, I think I might need or benefit from a book, all the way through the whole process of discovery and writing and positioning and editing and publishing, designing covers, designing interior layouts, publishing promotion, getting the book into the hands of the people who are your desired readers, your desired customers, the people that you're trying to establish credibility with. And there's all kinds of interesting ways that I've seen authors use their books to any number of uh, means, right? Like you may have, you know, there's there's one in particular that comes to mind. He's like, my business, my whole business revolves around Fortune 500 CEOs, uh, CFOs, I'm sorry. Like I need to reach those people and I need to convince If I convince five of them that I am an expert and the expert in this field, like my career is set. So I'm writing a book in order to achieve that goal, and like I don't care if anybody else ever reads it. I I, I need 20 people to read it and five people to believe it. And we're like, okay, but like if that's your mission, you cannot compromise the quality of any of those steps anywhere along the way. And you invest, you know, fifty thousand dollars in like writing and creating this book, and say 50 hours of the this client expert's time over the course of the year but now we have this artifact that represents you and your expertise and is like out there doing the work of building people's conviction in your expertise and what value you can provide for them in a way that by the time they pick up the phone and call you like they're already sold they're ready to invest whatever it takes to like get your expertise and get the results delivered to them that you know how to do like it's a fascinating thing it is a really fascinating thing
0: I love the Mayo Clinic analogy. That's great. It's such a simple model. I don't know why more people don't follow. Like Everybody wants one highly competent point of contact.
2: It's a very clear, desirable thing from a client's perspective. Like, just do the thing that works, that people want.
0: Yeah, and I mean, you're designing the service too for people who are ambitious and really busy and don't have a ton of time. They don't have the thousand hours to bang their head against the keyboard. They have maybe, like you said, 40 across the course of a year to start planning. So like fine tuning your service to serve a very busy customer base it seems like a big focus for you.
2: Yeah, we everybody needs leverage on their time and the well-organized, highly professional experts tend to be really useful. And like, that is what we do. We're like a private publishing house. So we will, we'll help you conceptualize the book. We'll help you write it. We'll help you publish it. Get it into the hands of the people that you need. For any number of reasons you know they're not they're not all economically driven, but a lot of them are and I've seen incredible stories like businesses built as a result of that and I mean it's not an exaggeration to say everything good that has happened to me over the last three years of my life is as a direct or indirect result of publishing a book with scribe in 2020 like that was an amazing thing and has led to like so many opportunities in my life, so many new friendships. It's, uh, it was totally unpredictable what they would have been, but it definitely like increases the surface area of luck, you know, that you're exposed to. And I've just been fascinated to see what dominoes have fallen.
0: Yeah. So did you write the, your Naval book with Scribe as a client first before running the company now?
2: I did. yes, I wrote the manuscript myself and then brought it to scribe for editing and publishing. So, I did what I did basically our we have a manuscript publishing service, we have a guided author service for people who want to write a book with sort of the partnership of a coach and a guide but they want to write it themselves and then we have the like full service ghostwriting kind of like we do the heavy lifting, the the high bulk of hours. So I did the manuscript publishing service with Scribe the first time around. For for actually, for the Almanac and all and the Anthology of Bology, both were published with Scribe before I became CEO. Yeah,
0: so you laid out three different you know, versions of service there for Scribe. Can you walk through the business of Scribe and kind of the different options that cl- customers have?
2: Yeah, so there's kind of the main three modes. It's like, if you've already written a manuscript, you just want help publishing it, like... Bring it to us; we will help you publish it. What goes into that is, you know, it starts with a, an evaluation, a read by our executive editor, who will give you like basically a book report. Like, here are your high points, here's your low points, here's what you might uh, consider different types of editing that might improve it, missing pieces, missing ideas, anything like that, or maybe just like this is an incredible book and it's ready to go. Let's rock on. We we go through cover design, which is multiple iterations, multiple options. We go through interior design. Auditing and placing any graphics, if we need to, layout creation of all the files, adjusting all these things. This, I'm oversimplifying, like a 500-step process over like at least six different sort of domain experts that we manage all. And there's like I can show you the big Gantt chart, but it is a fascinating. It's a very well-oiled machine. We've done 2,000 books now for over a thousand authors. We've published. We've got 150 books in progress right now. So it is a very like well-oiled machine. So that's so that's publishing only. Then we've got the sort of private coaching for writers who want to do their own writing. But we will help you position it. We'll help you structure it. We'll help you find a writing plan that works. We'll give you feedback as you go. And and that's really for people who are like, I want to write my own book, but I don't want to waste any time. And I want to know for sure that when I'm done, One, I will stay on track and finish it when I said I would, and two, I do not want it to suck. Like under no circumstances can this book suck, and I want to publish a book and I want to do it within you know, fifteen months or eighteen months. Guided author is an amazing experience for them there, and that's as much of a, an emotional coaching process. You know, this is this is fifty percent therapy, fifty percent logistics in a lot of cases, and that's not to be overlooked. Like you know, if you're looking at this space or considering working with a writer, like. Find someone who you really can jive with and who really understands that you're going to go through a journey as you unpack these ideas, especially if it's something like a memoir or if there's anything other than just like a really you know clinical specific story like this is this is a lot of people's like bucket list dream to write a book and and it's a journey you know you it's um you know just wake up one day and decide to do it it's you know at least in my experience, it is a thousand decisions to not quit. And just like keep at it, like even when you are consumed with a fear that this thing is gonna suck, and no one's gonna read it, and you'll never get it done, and even if you did, it you know nobody would care, like constantly overcoming that actually like it really really helps to have somebody who's done it before, who's seen it happen, who knows the next steps that need to needs to be taken, and just like feel you're like you're on this conveyor belt that someone is pulling you forward and Even if you just like pass out and lay down, you know, you will like the next step will happen to you, right? Like that is a really valuable thing. And then Scribe Professional, as I mentioned, you is the that's kind of the flagship where you've got this is in particular for the time constrained, but also a lot of times for people who English is their second language, they just have a lot going on or they don't love the act of writing and they just want to be interviewed and they you know if you ask them what they know it is so easy to just answer the questions that you are an expert in and lean on someone else to do the hard work of breaching that gap between your expertise and the reader and structuring the ideas the right way and turning them into like fitting them into this sort of format that is makes for a really good book and it's it is really helpful to have a partner in doing that And then there's a whole kind of high end of services that go from, it starts at $130,000 and goes up from there. That is, you know, you could spend $500,000 really without wasting money if you wanted to really create a huge impact or get the really like world-class, super highly proven talent across everything. That's not most people's, you know, budget. um, And we certainly work within that. But we've got some people that we work with who are like, you know, they are billionaires. They have built enormous businesses. They are enshrining their legacy. They want to become, you know, a, a household name or define a category or write history and make a really big splash. And for those people, you know, that it could be a very reasonable investment to create the impact or leave the legacy that they want to see.
0: Yeah, I like the focus. They don't have to be a great writer to make a book. Like the, the book is just a, col- it's a collection of small tidbits that add up to this one big idea. And the book is just there to communicate the idea. But you know, you have the idea in your head, but you just need to communicate it well. And there's no reason you have to be a great writer to get that idea communicated well.
2: I love the, you know, Charlie Munger's like, the best thing a human being can do is help another human to know more, right? We all have something to learn. We all have something to learn from each other. And In particular, I find like the people often that I have learned the most from are not, they're not the people out there with like bright orange book covers saying like, listen to me, I have so much to teach you, right? It's the people who like have been quietly kicking ass in their community, doing the right thing for 40 years or 60 years and leading by example and would never, maybe people have been telling them they should write a book. Maybe they feel vaguely that they would like to teach others or like to mentor people, but they don't know how to do it or they they don't have the sort of self aggrandizing instincts to like write a book. Just like you don't have to put your face on the cover. You don't have to go on a book tour. But like, please be willing to share what you know with other people. Like, don't die with all your best, hardest won information in your head. And books are the greatest technology for. Capturing those lessons, preserving them over hundreds or thousands of years. Like, we are still reading books that were written thousands of years ago. That is not true of almost any other thing that exists. Like, very few institutions even make it that long. But we have, you know, with minor modifications or translations, like the ideas that were packaged up thousands of years ago. And if you just view humanity as this, just weird agglomeration of sentient meat trying to learn more and teach each other more. And we're all just like ants in the hill dying every hundred years. Like the only thing that you can do to like enshrine, you know, not you can have kids to enshrine your genetics and you can write books to enshrine your knowledge and try to like help that snowball continue productively through the next generations. And so I, I think it's, I think it's a noble pursuit. I think it's worth doing, even if you don't necessarily feel like, oh my God, I have to I have like if you don't want the benefits of writing a book, that doesn't mean readers aren't don't deserve the benefits of what you could teach them. And I think almost everybody has something to teach and a story to tell. And the broader set of models we have out there, like I mean, the DMs you get when somebody reads your book at the right time and it changes their life is like so fulfilling, so incredible. And it's really rewarding to do that, even for a small number of people.
0: Yeah. Do you think that you're right? There is something timeless about books, especially print, that is, you don't know, really, you're not going to see in a lot of other mediums. Like I, there's some movies that will probably last, you know, well beyond the normal like lifespan for a movie in terms of popularity. We'll see if podcast get there i'm not sure if i do you think podcasts will be there or do you think it's just gonna be books all the way
2: i don't know i, I am super bullish on podcasts i i do you know our friend david Sunro like the podcast of the printing press for the spoken word like i think there's some truth to that and um i think that it's easier to speak in terms of audio than podcast specifically. So, like I think we are technologically at a point where audio can be created and proliferated way better than it ever has been able to before. It's just really hard to argue with like thousands of years of lindiness of books. And I'm I'm very technologically like pro technology, like digital revolution is incredible it's just not as clear to me that it will have the same sort of immortality as a book. It's certainly not, I don't think it necessarily has the same like prestige in the moment, which we can debate whether or not that's like correct or incorrect. I think there's a lot of podcasts that are a lot more valuable than a lot of books, but there's something, it is very rare that someone's like, come on my stage and talk about your podcasts or like, let's have an intellectual discourse about your online course. Like, a book just has a gravitas and creates a conversation in a way that few other other mediums do i don't know it it'll be very interesting to see. I think it's so much easier to lose it's so much more ephemeral it's so much easier to lose a podcast it's so much easier for it to get washed away i you know my th- that is the reason that I've compiled these books is like I see so much value being created in these ephemeral media in Twitter and podcasts and YouTube that's like difficult to it's it's not accessible to all of the people of the world the way a book is. And that there's something about that format that just travels and speaks to people and gets gifted to each other and like gets recommended and gets written about. It, like it's just it just hits different reality of it. And I think there's some there is value to be created by transforming things between mediums going both directions, you know, uh, David his life making podcasts about books. I think that's incredibly valuable. I have spent my career like making books from podcasts. I think that is also incredibly valuable. So like, you know, you know, there's, there's nuance and value to be created in all of it, I think.
0: Yeah. Thinking of, yeah, folks who've created a lot of, a lot of content. One, One thing that's kind of interesting about books too, is it's a, it's like a defining work. Like there's not many people who put out. 50 books in their lifetime. We, you know, both of us have put out, you know, 30, 40, 50, 100 plus podcast episodes and probably many more in our lifetime, but not that many in books. Books is a much smaller amount. Like I wonder if you went to someone like Morgan Housel who wrote for, you know, 17 years at the Motley Fool and has been blogging for, you know, seems like forever the collaborative fund and he's been on podcasts but he's got two books out now. Like, I wonder which has had a greater impact, the two books or all the blogging separately. I'd be kind of curious his take, but there's something, yeah, you're right. There's something like defining and longer lasting about a book. Yeah, and
2: there's pressure to it too in the sense that it's not as easily updatable as a blog post or anything like that. So yeah, I, I think it'll become... More and more common. Like there are certainly very prolific authors, especially in fiction, less in nonfiction. But and certainly, like you know, if you're Ray Dalio and that's the kind of book that you're writing, you're like writing the capstone book of your career. Then like, yeah, you're not going to you're not going to do ten of those. But I, I mean, I think Morgan will probably publish a book every few years, maybe forever. (laughs) Like, he's. You know, there's no shortage of sort of adjacent topics and demand for what he does. His his stuff is amazing. You you keep doing it for a very long time.
0: Yeah, I agree. So with the Enduring Ventures team became CEO of Scribe, can you talk about how it worked? I I heard a little bit of it through a different podcast that you were just like hanging out at Capital Camp or something like that when some of the ideas came together.
2: yeah. Man, this is a this is kind of a wild story and a testament to the unpredictable nature of the surface area of luck, right? So I had been following Scribe for a long time. Like Tucker and I read each other's blogs. And as I was sort of producing the Almanac Naval and, and tweeting about it, and Tucker reached out and was like, Hey, let, let me help you publish that. Let me help you at least show you your options in the world of publishing. And then I ended up publishing with Scribe, had a great experience, loved everybody I worked with there, was coming back for a book two. anthology biology so i was midway through publishing with them and i got just there were just like weird rumors that came up it was like hey scribe is like shutting down and i was like what no way like i just went and visited their office like a few weeks ago everything is fine Like midway through publishing and like where there's smoke there was fire and i wasn't really sure what to do there There's very few details at that point. It's all like wild speculation. This is like summer of 2023. And it was just like, had this fear that the business was going to either totally implode or end up getting bought by somebody that didn't appreciate what it was, didn't appreciate its importance in the world of publishing, didn't appreciate the things that I thought made it special or would like gun it and which would not be good for all the people that I know and love who had worked there, people that had like helped me publish this book that I had a great experience with. And fortunately, you and I both know people who buy companies. So I was like, I'm just going to make some phone calls and see what happens. So I sort of got the like contact at, at Scribe and just figured out, like try to figure out at least what was happening, or at least get some people's phone numbers and made some calls to You know, permanent equity and enduring ventures and OSV and like some folks that I was just like, I trust them. I think they'll appreciate what this is. Let's see. Let's see what happens. And so Enduring Ventures sort of got there first and like flew to Austin, started meeting people, started digging in, doing their due diligence, like trying to understand what the business was, what had where it had been and what happened. And I I loosely kept in touch with Cieva during this time. Cave and Xavier are the two partners of Enduring Ventures. They're great dudes. If you haven't had them on this podcast, they would be great, and they would have amazing stories for you. I'm sure many more than this. But
0: Xavier came on a few, I think, late last year.
2: Yeah, he was great. Xavier too. They're they're fascinating.
0: Yeah, I got to meet them both in the that Berkshire dinner. The oh the, yeah, yeah after the meeting. I think we're going to do it again after the meeting on Saturday. I think we did it Friday. And that, that caused some travel headaches as folks were getting delayed in or something like that. So I think Saturday will be the better day. It's tough.
2: Like everybody's coming and going so quickly. It'll, it'll be, it, this will be an interesting year. Um, yeah. It but will yeah, be. that's, yeah. I was, I was, I think that's where I was, partly where I was hanging out with them. And like, this was all before, this was all before this happened, but I was just like sort of getting to know them early last year. So anyway, the, what it transpired had happened. This has only become clear in retrospect, but basically like 10 years ago, Tucker Max and Zach O'Bron started Scribe and built it up into this thriving business, the thing that had given me such a great experience. And along the way, they hired a CEO and they eventually sold that company to the CEO who brought in his own investors and Tucker and Zach sort of stepped back. And I don't know all the details, like there hasn't been all the forensics or whatever, the CEO made some mistakes, like a, a relatively either large number or small number of high magnitude mistakes that led to this business, like, you know, 12, 18 months after sort of he took control of it, like hitting bankruptcy, like a absolutely brick wall. And as it transpired, there was no real, like, it seemed like there was no real board oversight, no empowered CFO, some like sort of mistakes in the financial and accounting structure of the business that facilitated some mis- mismanagement, to say the least. And it was a rough bankruptcy in the sense that like there was a lot of, a lot of creditors, like a lot of people were owed money. There was a large and abrupt layoff. That happened like this was what called attention to the sort of to the issue that I experienced that then was like, all right, we got to hopefully find a new like long term high professionalism steward of this business if it's going to continue to thrive and it had done well in the past, it just been mismanaged, and the bank had foreclosed on the business, so what uh, enduring ventures ended up purchasing sort of the the assets and the liabilities or the some of the assets from the bank i'm not familiar with the legal details of that this was like i joined after so there's a new business that was spun up hired over some of the team speculatively like then brought over the assets which amounted to like the logo the website basically and then a few months later hired me to become ceo of this company which was not a phone call i was ready for like and I realized that in retrospect, like it looks like I I did like an accidental hostile takeover, which is not what happened. I was just trying to get the, <laughs> to get the business into good hands. My grandest hope was to sort of be like a small investor because I'm a believer in this company. I wanted to support it, and I knew I would continue to use them. I just wanted to keep publishing books the way that I knew how to publish books. And I was such a believer, as you can probably tell, in authors keeping their full royalty and their full upside, being the CEO of their book, and having the creative freedom to make the decisions that they want to make. So I wanted to keep that, that alive. And I'd been enthusiastic evangelist of Scribe for years. And so, Steve and Xavier called, and they was like, hey, we own this business. We think it's promising. You brought us the opportunity. You've been an evangelist. You have some operating background. Like, clearly you have a, a feel for this space and the customer's sort of passion for it. Like, we think you should give it give it a shot. Like." Come in and see if uh, if this is a good fit. So it was it was some long some long contemplative nights, but um, joined in August. So I'm six months in as we record this now, and things are going well so far. But it's certainly like most of the people that I know who are CEOs built their business around them, or spent a very long time working their way up. And I sort of like fell sideways through this bizarre back door. Which I think is just an interesting story. Like if someone would have told me that oh, like that how this this is how this could work early in my career. Yeah, in in the whole world of stories that you and I share of like, you know, small business and private and permanent equity and like it's just fascinating.
0: Yeah, it is fascinating. Do you feel like you're given the the time you've spent getting to know other founders or executive CEOs through the podcast or writing your books do you feel like you came in with at least some sense of how to be a ceo and how to do it effectively
2: yes um i'm a little surprised actually by like what what different experiences have served me in different ways like i knew i was I was very lucky to like grow up in a small business house right like my grandfather started a business my dad had spent his career running that business so like you know we were eating dinner and like having conversations about how to make payroll at the dinner table, like that was sort of how our family operated to some extent. And I've been interested in business and entrepreneurship for a very long time. I was like, you know, selling candy out of my locker when I was a kid, and like selling T-shirts in college. Like, there's always been a like something to that. So I've been like slowly sort of accruing that, and then spent maybe ten years at a um, tech startup, like a venture back startup, sort of being a like generalist right hand man to the ceo like taking out a lot of different duties and i considered that sort of my like ceo apprenticeship i tried to absorb as much as i could about that and of course reading and blogging and podcasting and trying to build my own curriculum from people that i thought were doing admirable work leading great organizations you know and, and Munger was a very early like Touchstone for that. So daisy chaining like off of that in a bunch of different directions and just like reading people and meeting people and finding people with those shared values slowly like accrued. And now I'm kind of learning to trust the instincts that were built there. Like it is different. It is different to like, you know, trade with real money instead of like play the video game. But I'm so far and, you know, the success here is measured in decades not months so i'm not uh, getting too comfortable with anything yet but like i feel like it is interesting and i'm very grateful for like the feedback loop of reality to sort of get that more pertinent experience you know re- relatively early in life and feel what it's like to sort of be an operator and i'm extremely grateful for the context that i have which is like uh, there's an ownership group that is like owns 20 plus businesses in enduring ventures. They have a very well-trained expert CFO who sort of is my partner in all of the financial side of things. The team itself at Scribe is amazing. And the people in particular who made it through the ambiguity and uncertainty of last summer are all incredibly dedicated and incredibly competent. And the other leaders there are really make it easy for me to lean on them in a place where I'm not an expert. like you know, I think a classic CEO mistake is like micromanaging. And that is something that I am like, fortunately released from having any inclination towards because I am the least expert person about publishing in our company. And so I just have to trust the experience and the expertise of the people around me, which is a great, in some ways, just like such a blessing.
0: Is there an instinct that comes to mind that you've unintentionally refined that's serving you well now?
2: I think one one that comes to mind because it comes from the tech world is just speed. Like I, I think the operating cadence of some small businesses is just a little more comfortable than than tech businesses that are like, look, we're driving towards a cliff of money in eighteen months, and if we don't make a lot of progress really quick, this whole thing explodes. And and that just changes like the metabolism of the business. And so I think I was fortunate to have that experience. So I think from the tech perspective there's a speed like a you know hopefully a productive impatience and a a vision like a scale of not just hey let me try to operate the small business at its current scale but I think there's a path to like real growth and to build a big business here and I think this can become like a large and thriving business that publishes a lot of books for a lot of people at a really high level and you know, can eventually rise and sort of go toe-to-toe with the traditional publishing. I think that this is the right era for this particular model to grow and thrive. I can I can give you the whole TED Talk about the industry landscape, but that's probably neither here nor there for this podcast. The other instincts, I think, like, you know, the people that I had been my sort of heroes and role models, Munger and Buffett and, and Peter Kaufman, and it is a very... It's a very high trust, like look for the long levers, thinking long-term sort of orientation in a sense where like you find the right people, you empower them, you create a context for them to thrive and do great work and be rewarded for their great work. And you, you don't over you don't get too impatient, you don't try to do too many things at once. So just the clarity of prioritization that you get with a truly long-term perspective, I think that instinct comes from being deeply read and appreciating some of those stories and trying to balance that and find the right time to lean on that versus the right time to lean on my like more tech-driven, more high-cadence, impatient with action, patience for results, and finding the right places to place that, I think is, at least so far, has felt like the trick to me.
0: So you, you did mention like the industry landscape. I am curious actually a little bit. You mentioned you're doing around 150 books at one time right now. Like, How does that compare? What's a benchmark for a larger publisher like Penguin Publishing or something or someone someone else?
2: I think i read Simon Schuster does maybe 2,000 books a year. Now, there's a lot of imprints within that. And so like... From that perspective, I'm like, oh, we're only like 10x off the being the biggest publisher in the world, and so like my my like my tech brain is like, oh, yeah, all right, we'll 10X. be the biggest, That's it. yeah. Like one order of magnitude is nothing. Like we would be the biggest book publisher in the year, and like our biggest book publisher in the world in a matter of years. And, and there's differences between our models that actually makes that quite likely, and where we have a tailwind, they have a headwind on on that kind of growth. I think publishing is in an interesting spot where the the model that is the current dominant model in the traditional publishing is a hundred hundred and fifty year old business model in many cases, right? and on the one hand, that's Lindy, and there are well worn grooves in the pavement that lead people that way, and there's a whole like artifice of agents and you know bookstores and media like that sort of fits around that model on the other hand. You know, the whole like advance and take a back end of royalties from an author made a lot of sense in an era where you needed a huge upfront cost of a huge upfront investment of capital to print a ton of books. Then you needed to physically distribute those books to all those bookstores. You need to have access to those bookstores in order to get the distribution. Third, you needed like connections to centralized media to get your authors on The Tonight Show or get a review in the paper or whatever and now so something like 90% of books are sold on Amazon so there's no gatekeeper on who can list what on Amazon number 2 most books are print on demand not huge upfront capital huge upfront print runs that require enormous chunks of capital so that's a very big and mostly invisible innovation actually in the landscape so both many authors are surprised to learn that you know you could publish a book with no upfront capital and third most people just recommend books to each other on social media. So again, no gatekeeper, no upfront capital, just more of a meritocracy. And so when you think about that and the rise of creators who largely have built their own audiences, in many cases have direct access to their own audience through a podcast or through email, they've spent years building trust with that audience and vetting their messages and proving that people are interested in hearing what they have to say. And then one of those creators goes to write a book, let's say, why am I giving up 80%, 90% to a publisher when there's no upfront capital requirements? I already know I can sell 10,000 copies or 100,000 copies, which means my book is an asset worth, I don't know, $100,000, $500,000, a million dollars. Like, what's the equity value of that book that this author is about to create? And it's just not that expensive to publish a book. Like, if you wrote a manuscript and you bring it to us, it's $18,000 to publish that manuscript. Like to get that book well done, professionally copy edited, proofread, cover designed, spine adjusted, distributed, interior layout, all perfected, polished, QA'd. Like it's just not that expensive. If that's your input cost to build an asset with a direct value of royalties for $100,000 or $200,000, and then the indirect value of business that it could drive or opportunities that it exposes you to. Come on, it's not even close. And then the fact that you could have to be forced to compromise in some of those creative decisions in order to optimize for book sales for an entity that's going to take 80 or 90% of those book sales. Like, it's just, it's crazy to me. So that's what I mean in the context having shifted. And now, like, Scribe's emphasis is always like we get paid upfront, we do the work at an incredibly professional level. And then the author gets 100% of their creative decisions, all their rights, all their royalties in perpetuity. They can do whatever they want with it. Some authors go sell that to a traditional publisher. On the other hand, some people publish their book with a traditional publisher, are unhappy with the service or the marketing they experience, and bring their book to us to help them market it further, to get it more places, to get it into the hands of the customers they're actually trying to reach because they lose the leverage over that traditional publisher. What are you going to do? Like They have your copyright roughly for the life of its copyright. And it's a tricky industry, but I think I think the context has shifted enough to make it clearer to more people that this is a model. And I think Scribe is an innovator in this, a front runner in this. We are the biggest and the best of these businesses. There's There's a long tail of kind of small independent people doing this kind of work. And I think all of those in that space will continue to grow. But I think there will be like one dominant big, like there will be an IBM of this space. And I think Scribe is very fertile ground to grow that. And so that's kind of what we've got our eye on. And I think we've got a great team and great momentum to to get there. And I think you're going to see a lot of growth here. And I think you'll see the story of that industry change over the next few years. And I hope to kind of play a part in moving that along because I think it's the right thing for authors.
0: Do you see other large publishers trying to replicate some of the elements of your model, or is there just too much you know, institutional momentum with a lot of the larger ones that they just can't, they can't switch on a dime like you can?
2: I think the innovators dilemma there is really tough, truly, like I think that's kind of what they're caught in. I'm not, I'm reading up, but I'm still not a, really an expert in this industry's history yet. Hopefully I will be soon, like I've got a high bar for that, and I think that's important. I know that there have been small experiments in the past or small acquisitions that I don't think have made any lasting impact. So I I see that sort of as an acknowledgement that there may be like some open-mindedness in some of them that maybe there are are alternative models that are worthwhile, but it'll be interesting. I mean, imagine there will be a fork in the road in 10 years to say like, let's say there are one or two, you know, 50 to $100 million businesses like, like Scribe that are, Publishing as many books as the traditional publishers, and providing this really like viable alternate savvy path for these right kind of authors. Like, what are those traditional publishers going to do? Are they gonna spin up their own. Are they going to try to buy one? Are they going to change their model? It it will be interesting to see. And I say all this to say, like, there are definitely authors for whom traditional publishing is the right path. I, I like. I would be very open-minded and clear-headed about that. I just think it is a lot fewer than feel compelled to do so right now because they feel like that's still the only option or feel like there's a prestige associated with that. And they're, they're sacrificing a lot of freedoms or a lot of economics for this perception of prestige that I think is eroding relatively quickly. But of course that's very
0: subjective. Yeah. I don't really pay attention to who the publisher is for any book that I read. It's not. No. It's much does. more meritocratic than that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you read a book because your
2: friends told you it's great. And we are seeing many more like Alex is self-publishing. There's a lot of people and he made a bunch of bestseller lists. Apology self-published and made bestseller lists. Tim Urban self-published and made I don't I'm sure I don't know. I'm sure he sold a lot of copies. I can't remember off the top of my head if he was on bestseller list. But I think it is just becoming yes, much more meritocratic, much more much more social, much more decentralized, much more like you get the recommendations you want from from your friends or from trusted sites or whatever. And that's what really drives reader behavior and reader behavior then compounds. And there is no longer any guarantee that being published by a big traditional publishing house is going to give your book any lasting advantage in that sort of ideal meritocracy of people recommending books to each other and the long tail, which in my mind, when I design a book or when I publish a book or when I'm helping an author craft it, like that's what really matters to me is like, let's create something with a lasting impact. Like, all that value is going to get created in the long tail for you. You don't want to spend, you know, a year of your life and $50,000 on something that is only going to be relevant for a year. You want that thing. Like, in many cases, your book will outlive you. And that should be our bar. We should, it should be something that you are proud enough of that you're like, you'll feel some sense of relief that you've enshrined your knowledge in this thing that will outlive you and i i now love working on books so much more than writing or tweeting like i'm um, i've become a much worse tweeter and blogger and even podcaster even since i started sort of internalizing this cuz i'm just like man, this is just all like it's like playing legos or or you know candy crush or something like twitter is candy crush to me and like build, writing a book is like building a house and it's just so much more satisfying to to Create something, even though it's slower and more painful and more expensive, creates more doubt. It's like less of a feedback loop of dopamine, but it's more peace in my soul that I'm like creating something really lasting, and I like for me that's really satisfying.
0: So you you feel like it's less of a like the same time for tweeting and podcasting and all that, but more of I I just enjoy working on. Scribe more and doing less of those other things.
2: Yeah. Like working on Scribe and writing, like, and writing books. Like, I'm, you know, I would love to leave like a really solid, useful, interesting, valuable shelf of books behind when I go. I want like a happy family and I want to leave a bunch of books that I think could be useful for people for hundreds of years. And, you know, everything else is like,
0: They'll sell your collection at the funeral and all the proceeds go to your your surviving family and all that. Yeah. 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 (laughs) That'd be perfect. Who else would you be excited to profile and write a book about?
2: Oh, I mean, there's a lot of interesting people out there. I'm I'm working on Elon right now. That one is, I don't know, in the back half for sure. It's always hard to tell when you're in the back half if you're 51% or 91% done. I would I I am a really big fan of Paul Graham, but he does such a good job writing his essays that I'm not sure it's it's just a little different transforming something that's a podcast from from an essay. I think Steve Jobs is fascinating. I think I think Charlie Munger would be, you know, there's been a bunch of books written about him, but like selfishly, I just love spending time with him and his ideas. So I would really love to work on a Charlie Munger project. I don't know. I have a lot of I have a lot of ideas outside of like kind of this Format or this style that I've done so far. Like, I would love to write fiction at some point in my life. I would love to expand, like, write different kinds of nonfiction books. Once you go through the process, like, it's just it's very addicting to like complete this creative journey and feel like you've birthed this thing that's out there and it's discreet and it's done and it's valuable. And I feel like the experience gave me a little bit of X-ray vision on like I actually really now appreciate. Other creative work and the process of it and the bones of it. Like, I got a little bit better of like x ray vision about movies. I feel like I understand directors a little better as as a result of just like finishing the process of creating a book. So, it's just a fascinating, it gave me a new kind of lens on life. I, I think it's an interesting thing. And it made the next book and the next book and the next book feel more accessible to
0: me. Christopher Nolan would be a good person to write a book about too. He
2: is fascinating. I love the Founders Podcast episodes with him. Yeah, he's
0: brilliant. Yeah, they'd be really up there. Are there any like final like lessons learned from your time so far with Scribe? Only six months in, but anything that has stood out to you as a profound lesson about leading a team?
2: I'm incredibly inspired by this team and what they've gone through and the dedication that they've shown to each other to their authors, their customers. They went through a really hard thing last summer. Like a really hard thing. And everybody who is here now, like stuck by their post and didn't give up and took a lot of heat for something that they a problem that they did not cause, issues that were not their fault. And they really supported each other and like took some heat and came out the other side. And I'm on the one hand like from a business case perspective i'm i think it is fascinating that like you can go through an absolute forest fire like what scribe went through and now see regrowth and th- that can be actually somewhat counterintuitively a really powerful place to build from when you have a really dedicated team that really trusts each other because they went through this really difficult thing it's yeah it's it's counterintuitive but it's a it's actually a, a pretty good starting hand And I'm really grateful that they sort of embraced me joining and let me be a part of what I think we can do here. But they're, you know, it's, it is so great to work with a great team. And I deserve very little credit for creating it. Like I just got to kind of show up and in large part, they were there. And I just had to say, like, look, clearly, clearly you guys are great and everybody gets the benefit of the doubt and like this thing works so all we're going to do is try not to screw it up and let's let's preserve that and let's rebuild on it so i think i don't know i think it's just like worth a second shot and it's of course always worth like working very hard in life to get into rooms full of people that you trust and respect and love to be associated with which is course not news to anybody here or who's listening i'm sure but is always bears repeating
0: yeah absolutely eric thank you so much for coming on the podcast always enjoy getting to chat with you hope to see you here in a couple couple months not too far away in omaha here pretty soon yeah
2: it's always great talking to you i think you know we could go for hours in any number of directions and i hope we get to it in yeah. the future yeah hope to see you at a lot more stuff this year and appreciate you having me
0: Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of Think Like an Owner. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review and telling a friend to help more folks find Think Like an Owner. I also want to thank our show's sponsors, Hood & Strong, Oberly Risk Strategies, and Ravix Group for supporting the podcast. For full episode transcripts and our weekly newsletter, please visit our website at tlaopodcast.com.